arrive. And in the words of John Gibb Millspa, leave aside the little thoughts that distract you for this place, like all places, is a holy place. And now, like all times, is a holy time. Join with this community of seekers and together, let us find. Come, let us worship together. I'm Angela Herrera, the senior minister here at First Unitarian, and I'm joined today by Associate Minister Bob Lavalley, lay worship leader Kristen Satterley, music director Susan Peck, and special musical guest Michael Mandrell. Welcome back, Michael. Our tech team is DJ Arnie Gullered, tech arts director Chris Paul, and ushers Michaela, Bill, and Raymond. Special thanks to guest minister Emily Wright Magoon for today's Time for All Ages and welcome to all. We're glad to be with you. We're all so glad to see you on this holiday weekend. And we especially welcome any newcomers and visitors today. If you are new or visiting and you feel comfortable, we invite you to put your name and location in the chat so that we can greet you personally. And now Kristen has a couple of announcements to share. There's an exciting learning opportunity coming to First Unitarian. Whether we are trying to do some personal growth or attempting to dismantle white supremacy, our ability to change depends on our ability to tolerate some distress. Join us for a two-hour workshop called Preparing the Ground on Sunday, December 5th from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. We'll do movement and improvisation exercises to better understand how our bodies react to stress and to become more grounded. To register, contact Reverend Bob Lavallee. Enrollment is limited, so sign up soon. And all are invited to our annual Blue December service. The cultural noise and speed of the holiday season can be a strain for many of us. For some, the expectations of peace, love, and joy surrounded by family and friends has not been their experience. For others, December may be the anniversary of a memorable loss. Fewer hours of daylight make some of us blue. If for any reason this time of year finds you longing for a calm, reflective approach to the season, grab a candle or two and join us on Zoom December 8th at 7 p.m. Music, silence, companionship, and thoughtful words will surround and comfort us all. Now let us light our congregational chalice and the chalices and candles in our homes and hearts with this thought from Joseph Goldstein. The light of a single candle can dispel the darkness of a thousand years. Good morning, everyone. So nice to be here. Just a quick check with the tech crew that the guitar is coming through. Thank you. It's a piece called Monsignor.
We are Unitarian Universalists. We are a people of faith with open minds, loving hearts, and helping hands. This story is by Reverend Erica Barron, a story of light and darkness. Once upon a time, in a land far away, there lived people who loved the light. They built all of their buildings out of glass to let in as much light as possible. As soon as the sun rose every morning, they were up to welcome it, singing songs of celebration for the light. And when the sun went down each evening, they sang other songs, sad songs, songs of missing the light of the sun. They loved the light so very much. They did not love the darkness. Once darkness fell each night, they would hurry to bed, since they could only bear the darkness when they were asleep. Now in this land were born two remarkable children. They were twins. One was a girl, and she seemed to shine from within. Whenever she entered a room, everything seemed to get a little brighter and the people loved her so much. The other twin was a boy, and he seemed to bring darkness with him. Whenever he entered a room, everything seemed a little dimmer. The people did not like him. They feared him because he reminded them of the great darkness of the night. Now, as they grew, it became clear that these children were in fact magical children. She could even bring plants and animals who had died back to life. He could calm storms and winds and rains. He could bring anything to stillness. But the people's love for the light and their fear of the darkness only grew with time. And so one day they decided to ask the girl for a favor. They asked her to see if her magic could hold the sun in the sky and stop the night from coming. The girl was reluctant at first, but after many, many months of being asked, she finally decided to try. Honestly, she really didn't think she could do it. But one day, just as the sun was at its highest point in the sky, she went out onto top of the highest hill in the land threw her arms up into the sky and asked the sun to stop, to stay right there at the top of the sky forever. Now she wasn't immediately sure whether anything had happened. After all, the sun moves slowly in the sky. But before long, it became clear that something had happened. The sun had stopped in the sky. The people were overjoyed. There was a big celebration. They sang all of their songs, celebrating the sun. They loved the girl even more, at least at first. Soon they began to get tired. They were not used to sleeping when the sun was in the sky. They finally had to try to sleep, but sleeping with the sun streaming down on them, shining through their closed eyelids, was hard. They tossed and turned and woke up constantly. Some of them remembered that the boy could help with sleep, and they asked for his help. But his powers seemed to have disappeared along with the darkness. There were other problems, too. Without the night to mark the days, people were always forgetting what day it was. And without the sun rising into the sky and setting again, people were so confused what time it was. People couldn't keep their meetings and appointments. Families had a hard time being all in the same place for dinner. And you can imagine the havoc it wreaked on the animals and the plants. When 
could the owls hunt or the plants rest? After about a month, the exhausted, frustrated people began to see that this constant sunlight was a problem. So they went back to the girl and asked her to get the sun to move again. She went back to the hill and she tried, but the sun did not move. And the boy came and he said, let me try. Everyone thought about it for a moment and decided to trust him. So he took his sister's place on top of the highest hill, threw his arms up to the sky and asked the sun to move. And this time, there was no wait to see if it had worked. The sun began moving at once, rushing toward the horizon. Within 10 minutes, it had set. And within 15 minutes, it was full, dark night. The people were caught off guard. They had all come out to the hill to see if the girl's magic would work. Most of them lived more than a 15-minute walk from the hill. They had no fires lit, no flashlights. They hadn't needed them in weeks. They had never been outside at night before, and they were terrified. At first, they tried rushing home to get away from the darkness, but soon they discovered that rushing when you can't see where you are going is a bad idea. They slowed down, looking at the ground so they could see each step in the darkness, trying to get home as soon as they could. But then, one of them happened to look up. And what do you think she saw? Oh, she exclaimed, look everyone, everyone paused and looked up and guess what they saw for the first time ever? The stars and the moon. They had no idea the incredible beauty of a full moonlit night with twinkling stars. They all stopped hurrying toward their homes and stood and stared in wonder. And then they realized how tired they were and so slowly now, and with more reverence, they started home again. And there they all slept, cozy in their warm beds for a very long time. The sun stayed down, and night prevailed for six weeks. Six weeks of darkness to balance the six weeks of day. The people rested and were glad and appreciated the darkness for the first time in their lives. And after six weeks, the sun rose again. But at the end of the day, as the sun began to sink toward the horizon, they did not feel like singing their sad songs. Instead, one of the musicians began singing a new song, a slow, quiet song of thanksgiving for the night, for the darkness. And soon the others joined in and it became their new sunset song. And the boy and the girl grew up and both of them were now much beloved by the people. And the people remembered their gratitude for both the light and the dark. Let's move into meditation. As we mentioned in the announcement about the preparing the ground workshop that's happening next Sunday, any experience of growth usually comes with some kind of discomfort. It can be easier for us to encounter intellectual discomfort and think it away, but we are more likely to ignore discomfort that shows up in our bodies during periods of personal change and evolution. Instead, we may avoid discomfort by disconnecting ourselves from our bodies or distracting ourselves from what we're really feeling. The practice of meditation can help us stay present to what we're experiencing in the moment. The task of meditation is simple. We watch or count our breaths, and when we get distracted, we simply acknowledge the distraction, release it, 
and return our attention to our breath. It's a simple task, simple and very hard, but it's rewarding. When I practice consistently, I can focus better, I'm more relaxed, I like myself better. And when it comes to those moments of personal discomfort that arise, when I'm confronting a belief or habit that no longer serve me, I'm less likely to panic or shrink from the work. So let's take, it, let's take this moment to strengthen our capacity for growth by meditating. Find a comfortable position. Straighten your spine if that works for your body today. And turn your attention to your breath. Don't try to control it. Simply feel the places in your body where your breath happens. We'll meditate for two minutes. Each of our lives is braided through with strands of joy and worry, of gratitude and sorrow. Here in this virtual space, we are knit into a beloved community, each of us lifted by one another's gladness and helping to lighten each other's burdens. When the music starts, please share your joys and then your concerns as prompted by the video.
all these joys and concerns and the joys and concerns held in our hearts unspoken but certainly keenly felt all these we lift up to the great powers of celebration and healing and renewal known by many names let's pray together we lift up all those recovering from injury and illness may they know comfort and healing speedily we bless the artists and the writers people who show us new ways of seeing the world may they find support for their expression we bless the dreamers and the optimists the ones who don't give up on hope may they help us imagine our way into a new future we bless the whistleblowers those who place their livelihoods at risk to make a more just and caring world. May they be protected from those who would punish them. As Advent and Hanukkah begin, may we Unitarian Universalists draw from our Judeo-Christian heritage to both love our neighbors and move into a more profound spirituality in this season of anticipation and deepening darkness. Let's pray together with the words of Reverend Connie Simon. Spirit of life, love that surrounds us. We've been plagued this year by a tiny yet powerful virus that's ravaged our world, disrupted our daily existence and taken too many lives. We've been distressed by economic uncertainty and many of us continue to struggle financially. We've been racked by the political divisiveness that's torn apart families and friendships. We've been troubled by racial injustice and prejudice that continues to divide us at a time when we need one another more than ever. We are tired and still we are grateful. Grateful for the earth that produces the food we eat. Grateful for the hands that grow it, tend it, deliver it and prepare it. Grateful for the warmth of the sun and shelter from the cold. Grateful for those who work to heal our sickness. Grateful for family and friends, even though we may find ourselves apart this Thanksgiving. Grateful for another and the opportunity to begin again in love, to address our differences and mend our relationships grateful for the gift of life itself. We are grateful. Amen. Blessed be and peace be with you.
Our reading today is The Little Monk and the Samurai, a Zen parable. A big, tough samurai once went to see a little monk. Monk, he barked in a voice accustomed to instant obedience. Teach me about heaven and hell. The monk looked up at the mighty warrior and replied with utter disdain. Teach you about heaven and hell? I couldn't teach you about anything. You're dumb, you're dirty, you're a disgrace, an embarrassment to the samurai class. Get out of my sight, I can't stand you. The samurai got furious. He shook, red in the face, speechless with rage. He pulled out his sword and prepared to slay the monk. Looking straight into the samurai's eyes, the monk said softly, that is hell. The samurai froze, realizing the compassion of the monk who had risked his life to show him hell. He put down his sword and fell to his knees, filled with gratitude. And the monk said softly, and that is heaven. There's an old Jewish parable about an unhappy farmer. He and his wife and children all live in one small room. And although they have very few possessions, there's barely room to move around each other in their tiny, tiny home. To make matters worse, a neighbor has recently built a new home for his family, one with several rooms. Every day, the farmer sees the neighbor's house and compares it to his own small house and feels unhappy. One day, the farmer visits his rabbi, and when the rabbi asks how he is doing, the farmer tells it like it is. My neighbor built a nice big house, he says, and meanwhile, we're all crammed into a small one. Trying to get by with only one room is killing me. There's no privacy. The kids are loud. We can barely move around in there. I'm miserable, he says. The rabbi looks at him and thinks for a minute. I know what you should do, he tells the man, but I'll only tell you if you promise to do it. You won't believe me, but if you follow my directions, it will help you, I promise. Well, the man is desperate and curious. Okay, he says, I promise. What you need to do, the rabbi tells him, is bring in a goat. Bring in a goat, the man says, like into my one room house. Yep, says the rabbi, bring in one of your goats. Keep it in there with you and come back in a week. Well, the man has no idea what the rabbi is getting at. Is this some kind of lesson in generosity, giving away the space he has to a lowly animal? I probably should have known better, he thinks. He feels like rolling his eyes. Couldn't the rabbi just have told him a parable or something, commiserated with him? A goat? Really? But he has made a promise now, and to his rabbi, no less. So he does it. He brings a goat into his one-room house. He tries to feel compassion toward the goat, but the situation is awful. They have a very hard time getting around this goat. The goat does its business in the house, of course, and the goat seems just as unhappy as the man is. His wife chews him out, and she has every reason to, he thinks. A week later, he goes back to the rabbi, and he fills him in. This is not helping, he tells the rabbi. The rabbi thinks, okay, he tells the man, I know what you need to do. Bring in another goat. What? The man thinks the rabbi must be losing it. And the rabbi does maybe have a twinkle in his eye, but he's perfectly calm and he does not crack a smile. He means what he is saying. And this rabbi has known the man since the man was a child. So the man complies. When he comes back the next week, he looks 10 years older. I haven't slept all week, he says. My family hates me. The goats hate me. Our house smells like a barnyard. Now the rabbi looks truly sympathetic. He puts his hand on the man's shoulder and he says, okay, get rid of the goats and come back in a week. Well, what do you think happens next? Of course, the man returns with a huge smile on his face. 
Things are so much better, he says. I can sleep. My family gets along. We can move freely without trying to get around two goats. My wife hung fresh herbs in the doorway and now our house smells like a garden. It's wonderful. And the rabbi nods and turns this story into a parable because as everyone can see, until the man was grateful, he didn't really even have the house he had. A certain amount of discomfort or misfortune or suffering can awaken us to all that we have to be grateful for. Not that we would always welcome such a lesson though, right? In the early 2000s, a friend of mine was diagnosed with uterine cancer and she said, great, it's a fog, A-F-O-G. Another freaking opportunity for growth. She had a different word for freaking, but she was acknowledging that the hard times can be important parts of our spiritual development. But like at the same time, her sort of eye roll about it was also relatable, right? We can understand that. But even in the midst of something very hard, an experience of gratitude, it can be a, a really welcome gift. That's what happened to the author and playwright, Kevin Kling. He describes how his experience of prayer has changed over the years, how it went from give me to thank you. When he was young, he says, his prayers were all about give me. Give me that toy, that Christmas present, especially a squirrel monkey that he saw in the back of the Spider-Man comics. It was $9.99. I wanted that squirrel monkey so bad, he says. So around Christmas time, I'd pray to God to ask Jesus to tell Santa to get me that squirrel monkey. And he was working his way through the celestial chain of command. When he was a young adult, his prayers changed and they were all to the tune of, get me out of here. He must've been a wild one. One time he stowed away on a ship out of Athens, Greece, because he wanted to see more of Europe. And then during the ride, he was terrified that the authorities would catch him and arrest him. Get me out of here, he prayed. And then he got a motorcycle. He says he got it because he had always wanted to be able to fly. But instead of flying down the road, he ended up getting in an accident and flying over his bike through the air and almost dying. He woke up in the hospital and he found himself in rehab after that, trying to relearn how to function in his body. While he was in the hospital, 9-11 happened. And he says he and the rest of the country were all going through some post-traumatic stress at the same time. Every day, his job was to take the elevator down to the ground floor and try to walk half a block. And that just seemed like a monumental task at the time. One day, his wife brought him an apple to eat. Eating had totally lost its pleasure for Kling because of the head injuries from the accident. He had lost his sense of taste with that. He'd also lost a lot of weight and she was pretty worried about him. So she just kept begging him to eat something and he would eat for her. And then suddenly on that day, when he bit into the apple, he tasted the sweetness. He started to cry and he hadn't cried in years, he says. His body was flushing out all these medications and toxins and making the tears actually burn his eyes as they came out. And with his mouth full of that sweet apple and his eyes burning, he said, it just felt good to be alive. Thank you, thank you that I lived, he prayed. His prayers turned to thank yous. Sometimes it starts with a moment of grace, just an unexpected moment. We can't do anything in particular to earn. It just happens, a moment of grace. Maybe that's why at the table, giving thanks is also called saying grace. At that moment or after that moment, Kling says his life was changed. He isn't sure if good things started happening because he was praying thank you, he says, or whether praying thank you just helped him to notice the good things that were happening. Kling, by the way, was born without a functional left arm and this motorcycle accident permanently destroyed his other right arm. He says, 
When you are born with a loss, you grow from it. But when you experience a loss later in life, you grow toward it. When you're born with a loss, you grow from it. But when you experience a loss later in life, you grow toward it. Science affirms his perspective that more good things happened in his life after he began to give thanks. Studies have shown that people with a regular practice of giving thanks experience increased well being and better health. They exercise more, they feel that life is better, and they just have an increased sense of optimism. And in contrast, people who are in the habit of focusing on the negative, on what is not going well in their lives, end up feeling less happy. And that impacts their choices, which can turn into a negative cycle. It doesn't mean we don't notice the negative or acknowledge it, but it matters where we really put our attention. Maybe you've heard or seen uh, the experiment in which people are told to watch a video of a ball being passed back and forth in a group of people. And then the viewer who's watching this ball go back and forth is asked to count the number of times the ball is passed to the people who are wearing the white shirts. So a pretty simple task cognitively. But what happens is most viewers get so focused on watching for the ball to go to someone in a white shirt that they don't notice the person in a gorilla suit who walks into the scene, pounds their chest and then walks off. Similarly, when we are focused on our resentment or on the negative, we're just less likely to notice things that might fill us with gratitude, if only we would see them. So we have to be on guard for that resentment. Thanksgiving as a national holiday needs to have a major reckoning with history. And doing that is necessary spiritual work for the soul of our country. And I hope that we will carry forward the part of tradition where we focus on gratitude right at the outset of winter, because there's spiritual value in that timing, in the timing of a gratitude tradition. I mean, here we are in the cold and the days are short and the darkness is long and we give thanks. Thank you. Thank you for the food that's accessible during winter. Thank you for sweaters and fireplaces and cuddling up with cats or friends or other beloveds. Thank you for the sight of the mountains on a day like this. Thank you for the crisp air in our lungs, the ancient air that has swirled and swirled around the globe and been trapped in ice and released and passed through the bodies of whales and dinosaurs and touched the hair of our great, great, great grandmothers and given flight to the cranes I saw some of you mention in the joys and concerns today. Thank you that I am made of the things the earth is made of and that I have my place in the order of things and that my life has meaning through the love I give in this world. Thank you for what we are able to give and what we are able to receive. Here's one more story. This one's from the Islamic Sufi tradition. And it's about the great teacher and trickster Nasruddin. He was a real person and he's the subject of many apocryphal stories though, sometimes appearing as a fool in order to impart a bit of wisdom. In this story, Nasruddin's friend Mansoor comes to visit him. And Mansoor finds Nasruddin on his hands and knees, crawling on the sidewalk under the street lamp, obviously searching for something and appearing really frustrated. Concerned for his friend, Mansoor asks, Nasruddin, what are you looking for? Did you lose something? Yes, he replies. I lost the key to my house and I can't find it. Well, let me help you, responds Mansoor. And he kneels down on his hands and knees and he begins to crawl on the sidewalk under the street lamp with Nasruddin searching. After a time, having looked everywhere on or around the sidewalk, neither Nasruddin nor Mansoor can find the lost key. Puzzled, Mansoor asks his friend to recall his steps when he last had the key. Where did you lose it? Like, when did you last see it? He asks. I lost the key inside my house, Nasruddin responds. In your house? Repeats the astonished Mansoor. Why are we looking for the key out here 
on the sidewalk under the street lamp. And without hesitation, Nasruddin replies, because there's more light out here. When it comes to finding things to be grateful for and ways to express your gratitude, there's no use waiting for the perfect conditions. Your life right now is where you will find what you are looking for. May it be so. This year, from September through November, our congregation's Change for the Future donations benefit Read to Me, a project that provides books to children who might not otherwise have access. These include bilingual books for children of the Navajo Diné Nation, books for the Little Free Libraries in Albuquerque's International District, and books for the Albuquerque Public Schools. And now, let us together exercise the enduring power of generosity.
What is generously given is received in gratitude. Thank you on behalf of First Unitarian Church of Albuquerque. And thank you on behalf of Read to Me. And next week, we're going to have a new change for this future recipient. So look out for that. So we're coming towards the end of our service. And if you want to stay and talk to your sibling congregants, just stay on the call until the very end uh, through the credits. And we'll put you into a breakout room. But before then, I invite you to put your camera into, into gallery mode, gallery, so you can see all the faces. So let's do our little pacham ritual. Place one hand over our heart. Either hand doesn't matter. Put another hand, reach towards your screen. Reach towards your community. It's good to be here with you. And whether you're staying for the breakout rooms or going on your way today, I have a discussion question for you. I invite you to consider that discussion question is, what loss are you growing towards? What loss are you going towards? And I'll put that in the text. There we go. And Angelo will now extinguish our chalices and provide the benediction. As we extinguish our chalices and candles, friends, may you go in peace and may love bless you and keep you until we're gathered again. Blessed be.